Well, I'm like many of you, I'm a dog lover. Uh, we have an old 12-year-old yellow lab named Molly, and uh, I just adore her. But have, I have a question. Have you ever had a dog that you, never, that you didn't really like? You ever had a dog that you didn't really? Yeah. So it's kind of a weird feeling, isn't it? Especially if you're a dog person. So we had this mutt growing up. Its name was Peppy. I don't even know. My mom's here. I don't even know mom who named the dog Peppy. Maybe it was you. Sorry. I just called out my mom with a dumb name. Um, but, uh, but it just wasn't, it, the dog, well, I'll save us time. It was a stupid dog, okay? It just was a really stupid dog. He would, he, when he would get out, he always tried to get out. So when the fence was open or whatever, and he would get out, he would run down the street, and my brother and I would chase him, and then he would snarl and bite at us to the point where we had to go get my grandfather's fishing net out of the garage, take it, and then net the dog first, and then we could pick him up and bring him home. And if the door to the house was open, he would run inside, just jailbreak, and just carpet bomb pee everywhere, on every wall, all that kind of, it drove us nuts. It's like, you should be a normal dog and just be in the house. But, you know, and, and so the funny thing is, is, you know, my mom is very kind, but she would get so mad at that and take his nose and just you've done this, and just rub his nose in the pee on the carpet, all right? Now, you're still going to have to clean up the pee and the wall and stuff like that, but doesn't it just make you feel better to pay the dog back by rubbing his nose in it? You know what I mean? And so that was a little bit of what happened, and uh, I know that for me, I was really glad, because I'm sure as a little guy, I wet the bed. I'm really glad my mom didn't rub my nose in it for payback, you know what I mean? And so... I did plenty of bad things. I got my mouth cleaned out with soap plenty of times, but I'm sure glad that uh, payback didn't work also for me in that way. Uh, but we all understand this impulse for payback, don't we? We all understand this idea that, that you know, if something happens, if an offense has been made, that there's a payback that must happen. And so our main idea today is this, I'm just gonna throw it out there right away, is this, is that forgiveness, because we're talking about forgiveness today with Psalm 51, is forgiveness means that you, there doesn't need, doesn't have to be any payback. So these, uh, that concept and this whole, these lessons kind of come out of some children's lessons that we did with your kids just a couple months ago. And I just thought, man, that'll preach to, to adults too. Because don't we need to hear this a little bit? We need to hear about forgiveness and God's heart with forgiveness. And it fits right with Psalm 51. Because we all feel the need for forgiveness. We all have guilt and shame that are kind of ever-present. Now, some people have sinned maybe more grandiosely, you know, they, there's just maybe a little bit more outward and their guilt is out there for everybody to see. But I think a lot of us live with this kind of guilt and shame that only us, only we know about, that is kind of hidden within our own heart and we're desperate for other people not to see. But either way, I think when we're most honest with ourselves, we understand this separation that we feel from God. And so what we're going to see today in Psalm 51, and uh, it's David, it's the Psalm of David, and we're gonna see what he thinks about this idea of forgiveness. So you may be familiar with David. If you're not, let me give you a little background. David was Old Testament. He was a king of Israel. In fact, he was a major character of the Bible, probably the greatest king. The height of Israel's power and wealth was under the King David. Uh, he's an ancestor of Jesus. They say that Jesus came from the line of David, the root of Jesse. There's a lot of metaphors and things that are spoken of with David. He's seen as this great hero, a warrior. He, you know, he kills the nine-foot-tall Goliath as a little boy. There's all kinds of things that were going on. They call him the sweet singer of Israel. He would play, uh, write music. In fact, most of the Psalms here are songs written by David. And so he was very uh, passionate worshiper of God. But <laughs> he made his mistakes for sure. Uh, most glaringly, the double sin of adultery and murder during his time of kings. 
as a king. So what would happen is, is in the springtime when the, the, the armies would go out to fight, normally kings would go with them. David stayed back. He was at his palace. He's up on his balcony. He looks down. There's beautiful Bathsheba, uh, another woman on her roof bathing. And he is enticed. He, as king, draws her up, sleeps with her. She conceives a child. And now he's panicking to cover it up. So he brings Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, home from war, gets him drunk, sends him home, says, hey, go spend the time with your wife, hoping that it would look like it was Uriah's child. Well, Uriah is too noble. He says, well, I'm not gonna go be with my wife when the rest of my men are out on the front lines. I'm not gonna do that. And now David is panicking. He's desperate to make sure that he gets rid of and is able to fully cover up the sin. And so he thinks he's in the clear. And he's confronted, though, by um, what he does is he sends Uriah to the very front lines, has his men draw back, and he gets Uriah killed. David thinks he's in the clear until the prophet Nathan comes to him, says, you are the man confronts him about his sin, his cover-up is blown, and now he's faced with a choice. As king, of course, he could cover it up because back then they had pretty much absolute power. He could do whatever he wanted to, or he could repent, and he chooses repentance. And so Psalm 51 is a a penitential psalm of confession that he makes, uh, repenting for the sin of adultery and murder. Now, I realize you may not have ever done something as bad as adultery and murder, but David's response to his sin here is a blueprint for our lives about how we're to understand our father and his response to our sin. And so as we will look more closely at that all when we get into it, but I wanted to just kind of preface us with verse one and two. Let's, let's look at it really quick because it shows David's heart, his understanding of God's heart. Here it is. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So just right off the bat, David is asking God for three things in particular. And that runs through as a theme throughout the whole Psalm. But the first thing, and these are in your notes, you can do the fill in if you'd like. But the first thing is mercy, not justice. He's asking God for mercy, not justice. He doesn't want fairness from God. He doesn't want payback from God because you understand, and, and as we look at this, to be fair, God would have to destroy David, judge him, punish him for, for his sin, and for us the same, that he would have to destroy us for our treason against his law. And so instead, David appeals to his steadfast love, his unfailing love, knowing that God is not a penny pincher. He's not, he doesn't just dole out little bits of mercy here and there, drop by drop. No, he pours it out. He is abundant in his mercies, incredibly generous. So he's appealing to that. Second thing is he he says, blot out my transgressions. (coughs) He knows that sin is like a debt. It's something that's owed. Someone has to pay. So he's asking to God to zero out the ledger, to bring it to a zero balance. And he knows that he doesn't deserve anything from God, but because God is not, of course, bound to forgive him, but he asks God to do it anyway. And then number three, he says, wash me and cleanse me from my sin. He knows that sin is like a, our sin of transgressions are like a stain that needs to be cleansed. And we can't purify ourselves. We cannot clean it ourselves. It must be done for us. And in those three things, I want you to notice the humility that David is showing here. The acknowledgement of his sin. Because until you come to the point that David comes to in this psalm, realize that he needed his sin to be blotted out and the stain removed, then you will never humbly cry out for mercy and abundant grace and cleansing like David did. 
So this is what I was teaching the kids uh, a while back. If you picture it, you've got God up here. Of course, God's holy, he's righteous, he's perfect. So God and his perfection is way up here. And then you've got the really bad people, you know. The really bad people, they're down here. Okay, now my arms aren't quite big enough to show the spread. But, you know, all the bad people. Now, where would we place ourselves? You know, a lot of times we would say, well, maybe I'm middle. I don't know. I'm like between God and the really bad people. And some people, they're like, well, I'm maybe like right here. I'm a good guy. I'm a nice gal. I'm like right here. How's that working for you? Does that fit? No. Okay. I'm going to burst your bubbles a lot, everybody here today. So just so you know, God in his holiness is way up here. All the bad people are down here, including you. <laughs> you're, you're down here, everybody. We're all down here. We are the bad people. We are all down, way down here. See, if, if we're a good person, then we think that we're so much closer to God than the, all the bad people. And instead, so what happens is we think that God somehow owes us a somewhat comfortable life for how awesome we are. But you're not awesome <laughs> because awesome means you inspire awe. And I think only God inspires awe. Uh, you're not amazing, okay, because only God is amazing, And so what happens is we bring nothing to our relationship with God except our sin. So you're loved, but you're not awesome and amazing as much as people might try to say that. Now, David knows better. He knows that he's a sinner. He knows he needs steadfast love. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But the first point here is is, is key, so we'll talk about that. The first point is as you're feeling, that our impulse for payback is about fairness. Maybe you've done this, I've done it, where you ask God why. God, why? Why is some, this bad thing happening to me? Why do you allow suffering on good people? Why, they don't deserve it. Or maybe you know, you're upset that some other innocent person didn't deserve what happened to them. And you think, well, bad things happening to good people, that doesn't seem fair. And our little fairness meter goes off. And from the time that we're kids, right, we all know what fair is. And so the impulse that we have, is very, it's very human, but I'm just going to let you know that's more karma than kingdom, your fairness meter, okay? Because payback that we're talking about is a form of fairness. And here's what, the way we think about it. If I do something good for God, then he pays me back with good, right? And usually that takes the form of making my life more comfortable, Or if I do something bad, God pays me back for my sin, but my sin wasn't really that bad because God, I'm here and all the bad people are here, so at least I'm not as bad as all the other people. And so my sin isn't really that bad. And so you can pay me back, but just not that bad, all right? Because I don't really deserve that bad. Anybody with me? You're with me, right? Okay, so it's not just my tweaked brain. Okay, so here's how payback worked when we were kids. Somebody does something bad to you, there's two options. Either they, they can do something good to you, give you candy, give you money, give you the front seat of the car, whatever it is, they can pay you back good for the bad that they did, or you can pay them back bad for bad. So brother or sister punches you, they can either give you a dollar, or you get to punch them back. Isn't that how we worked as kids? That's pretty much how it goes, isn't it? And so here's the thing. Some people, it it seems simplistic, but we still think this way, I think, with God. Some people trip over Christ and Christianity, and and that may be some of you here today. I realize that. Some people here may think that Christianity is intolerant, it's offensive, it's bigoted. We're on the wrong side of history. 
or it would be hate speech, you know, to say that Jesus is the only way or something like that. And you might complain that, that a good God sending good people to hell is not fair. How can God be good if he sends people to hell? And my answer is, well, if you want what's fair, then we'd all go to hell, right? And so you don't want that. <laughs> you don't want fairness, you want grace. We're gonna get into that, okay. But if God judged everybody's sin and sent us all the hell, then that would be fair. That would be actually payback, that would be true payback. But if he chooses to save some and allows those, um, Jesus to pay for the sins of those through grace, then, that, then that's, that's wonderful. So Christianity is not about being fair. It's about being gracious. Now that may just disturb you. I realize that may trigger your righteous indignation. I understand that because you think that God is being somehow unfair and all that and still sending people to hell. But if so, I want you to realize what you're doing there. Is you're, you're, it means that you think that you're more fair than God. Because if you were God, you certainly would act more fairly than he is. So I'm curious then, and this may be some of you or some of your friends that you're dealing with as you're having these conversations, but uh, what, the, what would then the solution be? Should we just let everybody into heaven? The drunk driver who kills somebody? Ah, come on, buddy, it's okay. Come on in to heaven. You're good. Or the pedophile, the sex trafficker, it's like, hey, come on, buddy, we all have issues. Come on in. Like, is that what, what should happen? The, everybody should get into heaven with no acknowledgement of sin or iniquity or transgression. You know, we don't want to judge here. Would that be your idea of fair? Well, I hope not. <laughs> because David, in this situation, could have certainly gone there. He could, have, uh, he could have engaged his fairness impulse. He could have told God, you know, hey, I, I tried to justify himself, really. He could have said, you know, God, I've been a faithful king. I deserve to have a little fun. Come on, God, it's just who I am. It's a character flaw. I can't change. He could have said, God, I wanna be true to myself. It wouldn't be right for me to deny my desires. Or God, come on, you put Bathsheba right there in front of me. What was I supposed to do? Or God, if I let Uriah live and the secret gets out, then it'll hurt the whole kingdom of Israel if their king is seen as being a sinner. You see, no. But David is confronted with his sin and he could have tried to pay God back by doing a bunch of good things for God or uh, trying really hard. I'll try really hard next time, God. Or he could have asked God to pay him back, but pay him back personally. So God, you can judge me bad for bad. But instead, he doesn't make excuses. He doesn't cover it up. He doesn't give it a new name and call it something that sounds a little nicer than what it is. He confronts his sin head on. And that's what we see in verse three and four. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, David recognizes that his sin is first and foremost against God, not himself, not other people. And yes, the other people were collateral damage. You know, Bathsheba's life was shattered. She lost her husband. She, uh, that baby that she conceived of died. Uh, she lost her character. Uriah's lost his life in this whole engagement. And ultimately, David's sin, though, was an insult to God, and he knew that. He doesn't blame God uh, or circumstances or other people. He doesn't do what Adam and Eve did. Remember when they were saying, you know, Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the devil, and the devil's like, what'd I do? You know, <laughs> in the garden, you know, they, so they don't blame other people. They're not doing all that. And then in verse five, he says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. 
Here you can see the Bible clearly teaches that doctrine of original sin, uh, total depravity, that from the time of conception as a human, that we have sin deeply embedded in our souls. Now, if you have kids, you know this is true. Am I right? <laughs> okay. Uh, you don't have to teach your kids to sin. You have to teach them not to. So you have to teach them to tell the truth and not lie. You have to teach them to share and not hoard. You have to teach them to be nice and not steal or punch. So the, the sinful nature is in all of us from the earliest days. I mean, from the earliest days, you know, you, we're all just little sinners. I mean, you know, your kids are cute little sinners, but they're sinners, you know, they're nonetheless. So I tell your kids this every week. I hope that's all right. Because I tell them, I said, you know, you guys are sinners and your mom and dad are too. And I am too. And all the adults in this room, we're all sinners. You know, and, and I sure hope, again, that that gospel, that part of the gospel doesn't ruin your little self-esteem sensibilities. But here's why I do it. Because mostly, mostly because culture is telling them the opposite. Telling, culture's constantly telling them, you're just fine the way you are. And I'm sorry, we're not. And I think you know that. And I think we all feel that. Because the only way that we're gonna seek a savior is if we know that we need to be saved from something. And to, to know that we're not awesome and amazing. Okay? Uh, because if I'm okay and you're okay, then I don't need a savior. And if I just live my own truth so that, and nobody can judge my lifestyle, then I don't need a savior. And if I'm just a good person who messes up occasionally, I don't need a savior. And if I'm a mistaker instead of a sinner, then I don't need a savior. So here's, here's how this plays out. Now, we have some fun with the kids with this, okay? This is a Frisbee golf goal, right? You know they've seen these? You normally, you know, like you throw it 100 yards or whatever and try to make it in into the goal. So here's what I'm saying. Now, I like to play Frisbee. Now, if I was to stand here and out of 10 times, how many times do you think I could make it in the goal standing right here? One, thanks. Yeah, that's great. You sound like the kids, dude. <laughs> None, Pastor Chris, you stink. Okay, so if I was to do this, I could probably make 10 out of 10, right? Why? Because I'm right next to it. Okay, now Mark, come on up here, buddy. I'm gonna give you two. All right, you gotta go back to where you're sitting. So Mark's 10 feet away, all right? Let's see, Mark, let's see what you can do. Up, oh, fail. Oh, Mark, that's too bad. So now Mark, Mark's pretty close. Now, pretty good, you hit the chain, that's good. So Mark was pretty close, and still he failed it, right? All right, Doug, come on up here. Stand in the aisle. All right, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw this to you. Okay, now Doug's a little bit further away. We'll just try one for you, buddy. Okay, so yeah, I'm gonna guard the equipment. Okay, all right, so that's a little bit further away. So, right, Arnold back there in the sound booth, how would you do? No? Okay, so here's the thing. See, this is what I think happens is, God's up here, the bad people are down here, we're right here. So we think, we think that we're about like right here. You know, and so I can be just about perfect. Now, I may miss once in a while, but I'm really good. Newsflash, you're not, okay? Because my arm isn't even high enough to go up to the sky, far enough away from where we are. This is what I told the kids. I said, now I want you to picture if we just stepped outside these doors right here and you're gonna throw the Frisbee and try to make it in here, but this is in the Costco parking lot. How would you do? That's, and that's not even close to a proportion of where we are next to God. Now, some of you might throw the Frisbee a little further than others, but does it really matter? No. Like, this is my point. Some of you are, are, are better than other people. 
You are. Your sin is maybe a little less outward and, and you, you are more righteous and, and you do better. But the, the whole point is the goal is in the Costco parking lot. You don't have a chance, right? You, you could spend all day. And what, but what if I tried really hard, Pastor Chris? Who cares? The distance is simply too great. Now, um, that's the idea that you, Sin, our sin, our iniquity, our transgressions make God with his holiness so far away we could never do enough good to pay God back for the bad that we've done. There's no way for us to be close to God if things were fair. But here's the good news, like literal good news, okay? Number two is that God's impulse for payback is forgiveness, Ours is fairness, his is forgiveness. So we see this in verse six through 13. So to be sure, somebody has to pay for your sin. There will be payback, okay? You've committed treason against the holy God of the universe and punishment will be exacted. Somebody has to pay for the injustice that you've done. Jesus says in John 8, 24, he says, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And then Romans three twenty three: for the wages of sin is death. You go to work tomorrow, you get a wage. What's, that's your payment. What's the payment for your sin? It's death. Your, somebody will die for your sin. Now, this is where I think we often misunderstand God because we expect him to have the same in, uh, payback impulse that we have for fairness, right? Or this, in the same way. So we expect, we do something good for God and we expect repayment. So we, or we did something bad against God, so we wanna do something good to repay him. So we make big promises and all kinds of good works. God, I know I sinned. I'll start going to church, I'll start giving money, I'll start walking old ladies across the street, whatever it is. Or we expect something bad from God to repay us, so we're looking for punishment and penalty. And we don't realize that God's impulse for payback is forgiveness. So I'm gonna give you a little fancy Bible word, okay? You ready? It's propitiation. Propitiation. It actually means satisfaction, Satisfaction. This means that God's wrath for our sin is satisfied. So what it means is that God does not brush our sin under the rug. He does not minimize it. He doesn't rename it or call it a nice name. He deals squarely and harshly with it, which is why the cross is so pivotal and so brutal and so important. It's a one, the cross is a once and, all, once and for all satisfaction that the payback is complete. John, uh, 1 John 4.10 in the ESV, it says, if in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. So there is payback. You, and you get to decide who pays it, you or him. So you can pay back God yourself and you can pay the wage of death or you can allow another to pay him back in your place. He gives us that choice. You're free to pay it yourself with death or you can ask him to pay which he's already done. And the best part is it comes at no cost to us. He doesn't charge a fee. He doesn't take a pound of flesh. He doesn't require some crazy sacrifice or exorbitant price. It's awesome. That's right? Am I right? It's good news. So when we, now when we're sinned against, our impulse is fairness. His impulse when sinned against is forgiveness. So rather than us doing something good for God or God doing something bad to us in repayment, he does the ultimate bad to his own son. And now no other repayment is necessary. 
no more paybacks. It's the ultimate expression of love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us. So there's eight things here in these next couple verses that David is talking about. This, his understanding of God is so deep um, that he says, oh, okay, these are what I know about God's impulse to forgive me. And we're gonna go through these really quickly. In verse six, he says, teach me, uh, teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Verse seven, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Hyssop was like a sponge-like plant that grew in Israel and they used it to apply uh, blood to the sacrifice altar or the doorpost or whatever. So purging with hyssop is the idea of a blood sacrifice. Verse eight, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. So the Hebrew here actually means uh, make me to hear joy and gladness. So in other words, he's saying, say something to me, God. Don't give me the silent treatment. Verse nine, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. He's saying, Father, if I'm gonna be able to be free from falling into sin again, there's something that has to be done about my past and my future sins. I can't keep facing the thought of payback. I'll be defeated over and over again, so blot them all out. Verse 10, remember this old song from the late 80s, 90s? It says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This is our memory verse. He says, but Lord, if, if I have this old life and this old heart naturally inclined toward evil, and if I keep doing what's wrong, then obviously I need a new heart. I need you to change my heart. Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And it's not, he's not saying that the Holy Spirit leaves you. He's not saying that you lose your salvation. We, we just talked about it a couple weeks ago when we did the Jesus Love Me series. Um, the Holy Spirit stays with us. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. When we did that lesson, I asked the kids, I said, listen, how sure on a scale of one to 10, one being not sure at all, 10 being very sure, how sure are you that when you get home from church that your parents are gonna let you in the house? And they're like, well, yeah. I was like, are you like five? You know, because I just asked them, how sure are you that you're gonna go to heaven when you die? And I was getting like two, four, six, something like that. I said, now how sure are you that your parents are gonna let you in the house? You, you'll actually get in trouble if you don't come in the house. So I just said, how sure are you? And they all said 10. I said, well, listen, if you trust in Jesus and he's your father, God does not lock his children out of his house. Okay, so if you trust in Jesus, have a 10. <laughs> he doesn't lock his children out of his house. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold with me, me with a willing spirit. And then verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. You take your knowledge of victory over sin and you help other people. So when you have received forgiveness from him, it frees you up then, as you know what Jesus was teaching all the time, to then go and forgive others, to not exact payback from them. Colossians 3.13, we forgive because he forgave us. So, even a thousand years before the cross, King David understood the heart of God that there would be a propitiation, a sacrifice, a, a sacrifice, a satisfaction. And so he looked forward to the sacrifice. We look backwards to the sacrifice. Now I'll be totally honest with you. I've had a really hard time with David just in my Bible studies and stuff like that. I, I don't really like him. You know, you don't have to like every Bible character, do you? I don't like Samson either. I think he's a weenie. I, I, Samson is awful. I mean, he's not a hero, come on. But, but David, it's like, do you know what the Bible says about David, though? What does it, what does it call him? A man after God's own heart. And I'm like, whoa, what? 
Dude committed adultery and murder. And he's a man after God. I just have a hard time with that. Not to mention that he was a horrible father. And he was really vengeful, even up to his, on his deathbed. He was disobedient in the way that he moved the Ark of the Covenant, got a guy killed for it. I just have a really hard time understanding that, that, that David is a man after God's own heart. Until I really kind of dove into these verses here. The last verses here are the key. And this has helped me too. So the, the third point is this, that God's forgiveness requires repentance, not repayment. Repentance, not repayment. So I want you to ask that friend of yours that you have that thinks that God is unfair for sending somebody to hell. I want you to ask them, hey, do you put a, a, a sign on your front lawn or put an ad in the newspaper saying, hey, anybody who wants a place to live and free food and a car and all that stuff, just come on over. I'll list my address and doors unlocked. Just come on in. And your friend will say, no, I don't do that. You say, well, why not? Why wouldn't you do that? Why don't you just let everybody into your house? Right? Well, why should God let everybody into his house? I mean, if somebody is indifferent to Jesus on earth and they reject God here and they just can't make time for him, why would God force them to live with him forever? Since we're talking about fairness, that doesn't seem very fair to me at all. If you didn't want that, you see, God lets people into his house who want to be there. He's a gentleman that way. So those who want to be there cry out for mercy. They ask for repentance. Or, or they ask for, to, for their sins to be blotted out. They repent of their sin. They embrace grace. Those are the people who want to be there, and those are the ones he lets in. You know this. You don't let your kids into the house after they've been playing in the mud. You make them clean up outside. You know, you know what's happening, so you go get their clothes and you lay them on the bed and you meet them in the garage and you say, okay, you hose yourself off here. Take a, and you help them. You take, all, take those dirty clothes off. Just leave them in the garage right here. Run up, you know, the kids are all naked, running up the stairs, you know. Get up in the shower, go in the bed, and then, and then go in your room afterwards and put the, put the clothes on that are on your bed. Right? Wasn't that what you would do with the, if the kids are all dirty and, and stuff? Well, here's the thing. God wants us all to come inside of his home he only asks that before you enter, you allow him to re remove your dirty, nasty, stained clothes and change them for bright, new, beautiful clothes that he gives you, and then you enter into his home. It's a simple thing. That means repentance, turning away from your sin, not trying to repay him good, um, good with good or bad for good or whatever. God washes us clean before we come into his perfect house. Does that seem unreasonable to you? Does that seem intolerant? bigoted, offensive, <laughs> but it does for our culture, right? But it, it makes perfect sense because those people, those same people um, do the same with their own kids. And, and I, it's kind of a weird thing to say, but I mean, those are the rules, like it or lump it. I tell the kids all the time, it's like, you live in God's universe, he made it, so he gets to make the rules. If you don't wanna live by God's rules, you can go ahead and make your own universe and you can live there. But, until, but as long as you're living here in God's universe, he gets to make the rules, and those are the rules. You only get into heaven when you get rid of the dirty clothes and you change and you put on the clothes that he says. And the way to put those clothes on is to allow him to take your dirty clothes off and you put on clean clothes of repentance. That's the requirement. The requirement is not pay him back good for good or allow him just to smack you around or sacrifice, you know, that kind of hurtful sacrifice. So, this accusation of those who judge God and they stand in this moral superiority of, about God because he judges sin, because he doesn't let everybody into heaven with their unconfessed rebellion, it's kind of silly, isn't it? I mean, 
it's funny because many of those same people would get mad because they'd ask why God allows bad things to happen to people. So it's like, it's like which is it? Do you want them to judge sin or do you want them to dismiss it? <laughs> and the whole thing is just immature and arrogant. And, uh, anyway, verse 14. David says, deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. This, this is the key verse. I should have made this the memory verse. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and uncontrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, I think that so often when we, when we look to get right with God, we wanna offer some kind of sacrifice because payback is our default setting. And this was built into Jewish culture at the time. You know, they would go to the temple or the tabernacle and they would bring sacrifices, a bull or a goat to appease God. But if sacrifice was what God truly wanted, David would have given it. He says that. He was a man after God's own heart. He understood. He said, God, if, if, if really the, the, the blood of a bull is what you wanted, I would give that. But that's not what you want. So you say, when, when, when people say, but I'm a good person, well, they have a misunderstanding about God. They don't understand his heart. You see, because God doesn't see people as good or bad. He sees people as perfect or imperfect. Now, you may be good and compared to others. Like, you may be a little bit closer to the Frisbee goal than others. You may be able to throw the Frisbee a little bit further, but you're not perfect like Jesus you may not be a sex trafficker or killed somebody or whatever, but you're surely not perfect. And sometimes the good people are the ones who are the furthest away because they've got their hands full of all these sacrifices and, and gifts that they're gonna give God to try to buy their way in. And they don't have any room left in their hands for Jesus' good gift, that the only one that you need and is what's required. So what God wants is not payback. He doesn't want sacrifices. He doesn't want good works and empty promises. Oh Lord, if you give me this, I'll, I'll do this for you. No, what he asks for, what he requires actually is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Repentance, not repayment. He wants lips opened, mouths declaring praise and God will not despise that. So do you think it was good for David to get caught <laughs> by Nathan, you know, and to challenge him and to get caught with his sin and be confronted? Yes, right, the answer is yes, everybody. Okay, thank you, yeah. Uh, um, yes. See, getting caught gives us a chance to repent. And repentance is a gift that God gives us. It's strange this way. Stay with me on this, though. It's a gift that God gives us. You see, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, repentance, it's a virtue. Now, we don't talk about virtues a whole lot in our culture, but here's the idea. Virtues are not something that you just decide on. A virtue is something that you cultivate. It's like a muscle that you have to work out. So a virtue is not something you just put on like a coat. It's something you work out by doing. And so get this. You build a broken spirit and a contrite heart, not because you decide to do it, but because you work it out by doing actual repentance. You get a broken spirit, a contrite heart. It's like a muscle that you build because you're actually repenting. So here's the thing. If you wanna be a weightlifter, you have to actually lift weights. <laughs> don't, come, don't just pay for the gym membership, carry the little key fob, and you know, wear your little stretchy pants and shorty shorts and, and, and think that you're an actual weightlifter. No, 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 you have to actually go to the gym, you have to actually lift the weights to develop the muscle, 
Virtue is the same way. You can't just decide to have a broken spirit and a contrite heart. You have to actually develop the muscle by doing it, repeatedly confessing and repenting. And so David didn't decide after Nathan confronted him that he would have a broken spirit and a contrite heart. He had been developing repentance as a part of his life. He was bulked up in repentance. He already was a man after God's own heart. He had a strong repentance muscle. And so he repented with Nathan because he had been practicing repentance. And the way that you have a heart after God's is that God does not despise as you repent early and often. And so you see, I just want you to get all this and I'm almost done here. So you see, God doesn't love some future version of you. You know, when you finally get it all right. He loves you now and he wants to clean you up and release you of shame and guilt and live with confidence so that you don't have to pay because he's already paid it. You just come to him. He does not lock his children out of his home. Now, some of you have carried a burden of shame for a really long time. Some of you live under this cloud of guilt and shame that, and regret of all the things you've done and all the things you've said and whatever failures you've had in your life. Now, sometimes it's not even, you're not even sure why you feel it so strongly. You may have even forgotten what it is that you feel so bad about. It's like this identity that you wear, this cloud that hangs over you. But Romans 8.1 says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? You see, in a cancel cultural world, <laughs> and some of you may have come today just to hear this, God will not cancel you. If you work out your muscle of repentance, he will not repay you by canceling you. So I hope you hear this correctly. My guess is a few people in here that may have committed adultery. There may even be somebody in here that's committed murder. But Psalm 51 shows us that even those are not too big of sins for God to reject you. If your spirit is broken, if your heart is contrite, God will not despise or reject you no matter how big or how little the sin. And so receive the gift of repentance, not repayment. Open your lips and let your mouth declare his praise and you just might be a man or woman after God's own heart. Let's pray.